Welcome to our guest, Jared. And Jared, as you may have heard or might have told you, I'm trying to make this into a podcast. Uh, that podcast is being titled, Tell Us, Tell Me About Your Tech Job. And I'm uploading my first couple of episodes right now. So Darcy is set for episode two. And if you're cool with what we put together today, you'll be episode three, Jared. Oh, I'm honored, but you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel if you're hitting me already. So, well, like I said, we it was a it was last minute fill in, and you came through. So, uh, so so thank you. That's for true. That. That's true. We appreciate it. Um, Jared is a, a a young man who I have known for quite some time. Um, you graduated in 2011, so I would have met you in 2009. Uh, helped this guy move into his apartment, his dorm, right? Yep, sure did. I actually helped carry some of his stuff up the stairs of Warren Hall here, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, that's not the only student who I've helped move in. But um, now, Jared, I have not done that in as many years uh, because so many students get um, volunteer for that, that last time I went out there, all these young students just came up in front of me and like, they looked at me like, hey, old man, you don't need to try to carry this box. I'll get it for you. And so I said, sure, carry the box. Where are you when I'm unloading groceries at home on a Saturday afternoon when nobody else is around? Um, but um, anyway, so yeah, it goes back a long time with Jared. Um, Jared's one of my favorite students. And, and you guys will find that I've got a lot of favorite students um, and, and their favorite partially because they're awesome when they were here, but because they're awesome after they leave. And so Jared speaks to our classes a lot. And um, he's got a really, really cool story, um, an interesting story about how he got to where he's at now. He's an example of, of one of the, the people that I kind of, um, you know, I, I kind of say that there's like a, a sweet spot. There's these sweet spots in technology industry and careers where if you can find the right sort of technology um, and focus your, your efforts and your learning and getting your experience in that technology, you can get to be you know, kind of an expert for somebody in a region or working for a company that does all this consulting work and sends you out as the expert for companies all over or corporations all over the world. And I think that's what you've done, Jared. Is that, is that kind of correct? Yes, that is. Okay, so let's start out with, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, what, uh, you know, what do you like to do for fun, and um, then we'll start talking about technology. Okay, uh, my name is Jared Seitz. I actually am from the southern L Illinois area. I grew up a little north in like small country town of like Oakville, Nashville, Washington County, and uh Grew up there, so I'm I'm a local yokel to the Southern Illinois region. Um, did just I I was into technology all my life, but like I just did like fast food as a teenager, and then I worked at a campground for a few years, and then I went to uh, like Cascade College as my community college just to get my gen ends out of the way. I tried to transfer to another college going into comp sci, which computer science, so which I'm like, oh, this will be great. And something happened to where a financial aid fell through. And I ended up staying at Kaskaskia College for another semester. I'm like, I'll just kill a semester here so I keep my full-time student status. 
and I ended up taking like ethical hacking, like firewall IDS, and like a Windows Server class, and it changed my career from going into you know programming into like the networking security aspect. So after that, I just transferred to SAU Carbondale instead, and met Tom and all the other professors there, and uh, took a bunch of the classes. Tom's were really hard because. I couldn't get subnetting down and it was math and why would I want to do math, Tom? I guess so that you can create design and architect networks. Yes. <laughs> well, with that said, um, we do have plenty of subnet calculating resources available to us now, thankfully. Um, but so, so Jared, you know, he, he came here, he did his IST degree. And um, as part of uh, your, your studies, you were involved in some of our extracurriculars. We, we've talked about it a little bit in the other two, um, but it's important. So tell us just briefly your experiences with our extracurricular activities here uh, in our iTech program and at SIU. Yeah, I was part of the, the CCDC team, which is the security dogs, and um, also the, was it tech dogs, I believe it was called? was the other one tech dogs yeah tech dogs i think that was the, that, that's the uh the other group the volunteer one with darcy and yeah, yeah yeah so that that was a lot of fun and then just doing the normal classwork and stuff um but like the security dogs and tech dogs kept me busy enough and like we we had the ccdc competition especially like we had i had a ended up having a network rack in my dorm room so we did a lot of stuff there. And yeah, Tom helped a, me a carry up the a server rack. Yeah, but I helped yes. this guy carry up a server rack into his dorm room here at SIU on the third floor. That was great. Good times, Tom. And and, and when when <laughs> when when students say like, employers are going to ask you like, what you do in your free time? What do you do that's interesting outside of school? How do you keep learning? Um, I don't know. Personally, I would think, hey, guys, I've got my own server rack inside my tiny dorm room would be a little much, but it worked out for this guy. It worked yeah, out for him because he did. didn't have a roommate. Yeah. Yeah, correct. I did not have a roommate. So <laughs> it was perfect. Um, did have to turn the servers off at night or you can't sleep unless you like white noise of the fans. But servers are super loud still, and they were even louder than uh, but yeah, for like work at the college, I yes. started as like, I worked at Lens Point Kitchen and then I went to the library thanks to, I think Tom and uh, someone else. I can't remember who helped me, but there's multiple people who helped me get the job and I worked tech support at the library. And then I ended up jumping over to the wireless networking team for carbon siu and learned a lot of stuff there um and that was like my last two semesters i worked there and it was just an amazing experience so you moved into two different roles one of the things um and you know uh like monica she's remote up in st louis metro east but um you know, Alex, Matthew here, uh, Jared, um, examples of students who are taking advantage of the fact that campus IT takes advantage of the fact that there are students who seek employment in the IT that can do work for them. 
Um, and, you know, that's a tremendous asset and benefit to SIU. Um, having the ability for students to work with some really, really good mentors. And one of the cool things about SIU versus like just maybe your regular old internship or your first job or a summer job at Den Technology is um, the IT people who who work here on campus and, and employ student workers are IT people, but all the ones I've had a lot of communication with have like the heart of a teacher too. So they, you know, they they don't treat you as if you're just somebody to do menial tasks. They're wanting you to be involved in things that are interesting and then explaining how things work better so that you're getting, you know, a learning experience as you're working for them, making absolutely nothing in terms of money. But uh, you're getting knowledge and that's cool. And and that's something really unique to SIU. There was a study that was put out internally maybe 10 years ago, but it talked about how like the number of IT hours um, worked on campus, like 48% or something like that was student work. Um, so just a tremendous amount of, of you know, student opportunity to, uh, to work in campus IT and help and to get experience, which is awesome. Um, so you graduated, you, you spent your time here, did our classes, kind of focused in on networking and security, got your degree, did your RSO stuff. Now you were on one of the teams that got was it fourth or did you were, were you on one of the teams that made second in state? Second, uh, second in state, and then fourth second in regionals. In, no, second. second in regionals. Okay, so we had a pretty successful year with the CCDC, um, with with Jared and the security dogs that year, and then you then you get out and you you graduate, and I know you had kind of some weird things that happened. Um, in regards yeah. to what happened, what, what you, where you went after you graduated. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's important for students to know that, you know, the job search, you don't always like go directly from getting your diploma on the stage into the million dollar, you know, CIO role. Um, there's, you know, bumps in the road sometimes, and sometimes it takes a little while. So give us, give us your story there, Jared. Yeah, so I'll start by saying I graduated. I'm all happy. I've been interviewing and I've been failing at interviewing for months at that point. And I didn't have a job lined up after I graduated. So I ended up working at the campground again. I was working in the kitchen at, while I was interviewing for other places because having a job is nice. And um, I eventually got an offer to do an internship in the state of Oklahoma because I had a family friend who knew the CIO of the state and they had an internship program. So I ended up doing, it was a seven month internship program over there. And what happened there was really good with the team, but politics got into play where a new governor was elected before I started and they ended up firing not the CIO, but they ended up firing my boss at the time. I worked there for a month, so I lost my boss as the intern. And when my I ran out of hours, they're like, we don't have any way to approve you to get permanently hired because the person who could do the hiring was still being looked for a replacement. So I just, I ended up having to come back home here and I ended up working at the camp again as a fallback. And when I started there, I uh, Tom actually introduced me to a company in Kansas City, Cerner, 
they're now part of Oracle, but they were a healthcare IT company out of Kansas City. So I'm like, okay, cool. And interviewed with them, went great. And I got the job and I got into like their entry level program of, hey, we'll find a job for you because you're really good at IT. You have good skill set. We'll find the perfect team for you. It's like, it was like a five week class. And then you did two six week rotations for two team for two different teams. And I did the class, which was a lot of stuff I learned at Carbondale and then proprietary stuff at the company. And then when I got on my first team, they're like, oh, or they do the speed dating thing. And my first team was like, oh, you have this thing called Splunk on your resume. Backtrack to CCDC, whereas where I got introduced to Splunk at Carbondale, and it was part of the competition. So like I learned a little bit of it. I could talk about it for a few minutes. I'm like, yeah, I know it's it's a it was a one-liner on my resume. And they're like, that's perfect. I got put on that team and they're like, we just got this new program called Splunk. Absolutely no one knows how to use it. The development team bought it, they set it up and they kicked it over to us. Do you know how to do anything with this? I'm like, oh sure. And I did the basics and they're like, perfect. We want you to join the team permanently. And the team I joined was called Emerging Technology Solutions. They were doing all the buzzwords. They were doing private cloud before cloud was a big thing. They were doing the DevOps, every buzzword you can think of, they were doing it before it was cool, yada, yada. I ended up doing that for about four and a half years before I got an offer to join another, like a startup company called Defense Point Security. And they wanted my Splunk experience and they trained me up. I ended up doing like five Splunk classes and a certification to get trained up on their consultant program. And then they ended up getting bought out by another company called the Center Federal Services, where I, which I am, where I am now. But I did traveling consulting work for a while, and then they did like a full merger. And then I ended up on my current project. And then it was like a year later, big, big pandemic happened. And then everyone's remote, but, <laughs> but that's the way it is. Like I, I was remote before it was cool, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's your claim to fame, is it? It is. It is. I was doing remote work for. I was the only remote person at the beginning of the pandemic. And now the whole team is almost hundred percent remote with like just the, like the leads and stuff. They'll go in occasionally to make the people happy. FaceTime with the client. Yep. All right. So there's a word that we've been throwing around and it's Splunk, Jared, for someone who's not familiar with Splunk or has only heard of it. Tell us in your words as a, certified core certified consultant and an enterprise systems administrator those are certifications tell us what splunk is without going like technically over anybody's heads that's tough isn't it yeah it is well it's it's i mean it's it's basic core is doing log aggregation so it's you send logs into it it parses them it breaks out the fields and it helps you normalize, normalize the data so you can search across different technologies easier. So if we think of logs, what is a log? So like when I log on to this computer, 
that is on my workstation, you know, here on my desk, it generates log files. It says, uh, this service started up at this point in time and somebody tried to enter and Tom and Bowden authenticated successfully at this point in time. And this program was launched and we shut down this service. And then we did a virus scan. And, you know, if you actually get into your logs on your Windows system, you'll see there are quadrillions, you know, I just made it up, of entries of mm -hmm. all sorts, you know, and and logging is something that all, you know, systems probably have the capability of doing. And there's a trade-off between do we log every single little thing that happens at the expense of speed of what's doing the logging and storage of, of logging all that? Or do we turn some things off and risk missing like security incidents or, um, you know, clues as to why the application breaks all the time um, and, and have it run a little faster and takes less storage. Um, so, so Splunk, you know, when we think of logging, a lot of times we are thinking of like your security details. Did somebody log in? Did they try to guess Tom's password 16 times? One thing I recently discovered, you all might take a look at this too, but when you go into your Outlook through SIU, you can go under the accounts and somewhere there's like sign-ins or something like that. And I found that um, this was back in spring semester by looking at these logs, which are logs of where people have tried to or where different services have logged into my Outlook account, you know, which is a cloud-based account now. And I found that, um, you know, this was maybe all March. I found that the week before I had been the subject of a um, password attack. Uh, and I saw in my logs over the course of like 18 to 24 hours, different attempts at logging into my account from countries all over the world or IP addresses from countries all over the world, a ton in South Africa, Southern African region, Middle East, Cambodia, Vietnam, all that type of stuff. So think of that as like some of the information that that is logged um, for security, because Splunk, this giant corporation, this huge tool, um, was widely used for security purposes originally, right? And that's that's why we learned about it in the CCDC events, because it would be used to take logs from uh, the different devices on our competition, so different servers and different routers and switches, and, and the students had to set it up so those machines whatever type of format they log would send or forward to these log aggregator Splunks, Splunk instances, servers that were running Splunk. And then those logs would be taken in by Splunk. And what happens again? Say that again, Jared. They get, it gets aggregated and normalized. Which means what? So whenever, so the reason why you'd want to do that is, so like if you have a, a laptop with, Tom and Bowden logged in and he's at IP 10, 10, 10, 10, you can go check the firewall log that's also going into Splunk and search for, hey, what has IP address 10, 10, 10, 10 done? And you can tie that together saying, well, Tom and Bowden went out the firewall. It was allowed. He went to his favorite website of, you know, google.com and bing.com or ask Jeeves. <laughs> How about DuckDuckGo? DuckDuckGo, much better. And, you know, he searched for his favorite, he searched for uh, local pizza places. He wanted to try new pizza places. So, and then, but like all that's logged. 
Um, and depending on the granularity, like what it, what piece is actually logged? Because for today, you're like, since everything's using certifications and trying to be encrypt everything, we may see that he went to DuckDuckGo, but we may not be able to see what he searched now because it establishes a encrypted connection. So that goes into like deeper, more technology of like, how do we like, ha like, how do you find out more information? And I'm not going to go into that because now that's going sideways on like SSL. Uh, decryption and all that type decrypt, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Interception, yeah. So bottom line, Splunk is a tool that originally was purposed with taking um, machine or log data from all sorts of different systems, firewalls, applications, web applications, database systems, Active Directory servers, um, you know, VPN servers, voice over IP, just taking all sorts of logs. And then those machines would either send the logs directly to a Splunk server or a Splunk server, you would install log forwarding tools on like a Windows machine or a Windows server. And then those forwarding tools would take the Windows logs and then send them to Splunk. And if you're dealing with Windows logs versus Linux versus Cisco logs, they may not all look identical. And I, in fact, they don't. And so mm -hmm. that's what he talks about when he says normalization. You've got to get those logs and you can kind of bring them into the Splunk database in a way that makes it kind of apples to apples to where you take, you know, what was a Linux log that you're bringing in to show login information for users but a Cisco log brings in and it's completely different format. So we, we do some fiddling around and, and transpose and some normalization. So everybody looks kind of the same in general when it gets into Splunk. And why is it important for, I guess, all that information to be available centrally in a machine um, on a system like Splunk, Jared? It, well, I'm going to go with like, it depends. Most time it's so you can audit systems. You can make sure systems are behaving appropriately. Um, but then it goes into like what they think. So like Splunk as a sim is the, like how it got started. It's next phase of evolution, I guess, would be based on the maturity is like you start going into the SOAR or the automation of the orchestration, like uh, orchestration automation response. So that's the next step for like Splunk to where instead of just searching logs all the time, you're setting up searches that search automatically. And instead of just sending an alert to your security team saying, hey, this firewall has a deny, or you have a lot of outbound traffic because you're now starting to correlate different types of data, it's automating. It's like, hey, instead of letting this guy keep sending data out, I now have uh, another tool that sends a request to the firewall hey, automatically deny this IP for the next 10 minutes or, you know, block it indefinitely. And then another one says, hey, have this antivirus automatically scan this system for threats because something's going wonky or quarantine to the device, clone, build up a new image and then automatically throw a new image on the laptop and take the cloned image and put it in like a, a honeypot reservoir for the reverse engineers to look at stuff like that it was all automated in the background instead of manually doing those steps. But it goes back to the base of having logs and being able to tie them together in meaningful ways. Awesome. So 
you got to have the data in Splunk and Splunk came on as the leader in, in log and other type of data aggregation in enterprise environments. Um, and so you've got teams that work with Splunk getting all their important systems to be sending the data up to the Splunk server so that the Splunk server can be used uh, you know, to the, its most efficient and, and best ends, which like Jared said, that could be something that is using uh, data and uh, intelligence and tools built on top of what, what, what used to be, because Splunk used to be just kind of a search and visualize what's in the data. You could like, for example, Splunk, if you had it taking all your login data from your firewalls or your Active Directory, your Windows user accounts or at web applications, and let's say that you wanted Splunk to give you a report of every user who entered their password in three times the day before incorrectly. You know, that type of stuff can be um, created and, and delivered automatically, but it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's reactive, it's reporting. Um, what Jared's saying now is with, with Splunk and with some of the SOAR and other arc, uh, automation tools, um, Splunk data and Splunk events that are brought in from other machines can be analyzed and then things can be triggered to happen that would normally would have called ma caused manual intervention. So like, you know, if you see that within Splunk, you could create some sort of rule set or some sort of action so that if if we see that that Tom's email account has sent out, um, you know, 150 messages in under a minute, then let's go ahead and switch over with and do some sort of action to one, notify Tom's email, you know, whoever is the IT guy for Tom's side, and then also block sending um, of email for 15 minutes or something like that. So it's 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 automating things. And like you said, Jared, if you don't have the data, you can't make decisions on the data. So that's mm -hmm. one of the arguments for, for a tool like Splunk and keeping all that data centralized. Yeah, so on that aspect, Splunk, one of the way they price is based on size of data ingested. So that's one and thing. When, you, that's when a, you say ingested, that means like you've got Splunk running, you know, think of it as like a, somebody at a pie eating contest, right? And you're paying how much per pie that he's getting eaten. Like how many you, for your licenses, you're thinking my Splunk's going to eat hmm, seven pies this day. And so you're paying for seven pies worth, right? Um, but really you're talking about terabytes of data that's being brought in daily. Is that, is that correct? Correct. Yes, that is correct. So I, uh, my, my good friend texted us last night and uh, said, Hey, I'm dropping by your house. We weren't home. She dropped by. Come to find out, she brought us two pies. And so I had pie for breakfast. Oh, yum. Yep. That's the why. Breakfast uh, of champions. Yep. One of them. But um, <laughs> yeah, so that's where the pies came from. So so anyway, go back to talking about ingesting. Ingesting is bringing in the data from multiple sources. Yep. And Splunk themselves as a company, they have started building out tools so they've always had what they've called a universal forwarder, which is an agent to help bring logs in. They've started building more advanced tools because the agents are limited in what they can do. You can't rip apart stuff. You can't do like aggregations. You just send it in and Splunk has to do all the work. 
Splunk has a tool they call the data stream platform, and it's it's okay. They've also introduced in their new nine version, which got released last week, better ways to manipulate the data as it's coming in. And there's other companies out there that have helped kind of speed this up along. Cribble, which is a company I love, and they're going to eventually be a competitor to Splunk um, just because of the way they're heading and the way they see the way things go. They're a bunch of former ex-Splunkers, so they really know their stuff and they're super sharp. Um, but their tool is basically you send anything into their program. So basically you set up a Cribble server, you send data to that, it will uh, it'll help you basically manipulate the data and transform it any way you want. And normalization is like the big one. And then you send that to Splunk or you can send that to like any other programs. Um, you can send it to just a normal uh, SAN to be stored long-term so it doesn't go into Splunk or there are use cases like sending it to an S3 bucket in Amazon, cheap storage, send it there long-term for your archive because if you're certain, you have certain government regulations where you have to keep, you now have to keep data for like 12 months and it's gotta be quick and like 15 months, 12 months, years, like you send it to the cheapest storage you can. And if you're in the cloud, Amazon, Azure, other like cloud storage is probably cheaper than you being able to set up something locally, depending on the use cases. And and, and I want to I want to mention something. You talked about um, keeping data. You know, needing to keep data in a lot of industries. And I think tomorrow's guest will speak to this because um, data retention is is an important thing that that large organizations and small organizations have to deal with. Like, how long do you need to keep your data? So, just a couple examples, like. You know, if you think about something like like somebody's medical records, how long do you need to keep those? Probably forever, right? Until that person passes away. Um, or once they're passed away, they could be archived, but they're still accessible. You know, how long do you need to keep? Well, for another example, I was always told the manufacturing facility I was IT support or supervisor for built car parts. And I was always told that we had to have a data policy to retain any documents relating to parts that we made for automobiles for seven years after the discontinuation of our part being used in an automobile. So basically like we need to have the stuff so that there's a warranty claim or something like that within seven years of us quitting making that part or supplying that part, we've got to have that available. And so data retention is big and Splunk is a tool that can kind of help with that um mm -hmm. sorry to jump in and uh, oh, interject it, but it brings up a good point because this goes into the point of like even if you want to do so this past year for me i've learned a lot about splunk even though i've been using it for about eight years now i helped the current customer save around a million dollars on storage costs because the way we were storing the data was inefficient for keeping it long term. So we we ended up using Cribble to help break out the logs a little bit lighter and still get that same information into Splunk, but it was taking up like half as much disk space when it's stored. So that's something else that you have to consider as like another dimension of like what you're doing because just throwing into Splunk is one thing, but once you realize we have to keep this for like over a year, Every megabyte, as silly as it sounds, adds up quickly. Um, 
because like for us we were looking at i mean we were looking at petabytes of information that we'd have to store and we're we're just cutting that down because we're still in like the several hundred terabytes now but it's one of those things where like you have to like the efficiency of storing the data also has to be considered because it's costs, right? Because you have you have your front end costs if you're storing this data locally, and then if you're also moving up to the cloud, you're paying for the data to be stored twice, and mm -hmm. and and that may be a requirement of your industry. You have to have your data stored twice in place. Who knows? Um, and and so you figured out how to save money because you were able to decrease the amount of storage space, um, which may have been what like ten percent, something like that, or. It was, it was, we, we restructured the logs themselves. So like the logs themselves had like multiple IPs built into them. So we basically removed identical IPs. So we removed it and just added as fields and restructured, basically restructured the whole log to be more efficient on space. So like one example that we, we saw was if a, if data is coming in as JSON, it's super easy to bring in a Splunk because it's key valued right there. Okay. But the problem is JSON, the way it's structured takes up so much space. So the actual disk space of JSON is massive. So you could have the exact same event in JSON take up like five megs of space while if it was coming in as like CSV or comma delimited values, it would only take up like a handful, like half that. Like, and that's just, the numbers aren't right, but there's like a big difference between how the data is actually being stored as well, like what format it is, even going into Splunk. So that's something that we, we've had to keep in mind and we've actually had to restructure stuff. And like I said, for us, we're using the program Cribble to help streamline it for us for our workflow. But I think Splunk has now kind of built that into their platform to help their customers do that on their own without having to rely on a third-party tool. So it's it's a trade-off. Cribble does it really well and they do it really quick. And Splunk is just now getting into that race of really helping the storage aspect of it. But I think that's a really cool aspect though too, is to give people, you know, cause, cause most of our students aren't yet working at enterprise scale. And, and here's Jared's telling us, he's got a customer who's storing petabytes of data, you know, petabytes of data. That's like two or three hard drives worth, right? Yeah, just a couple. <laughs> um, so, so tremendous, you know, infrastructure, storage design, SANS, and, you know, that type of thing behind the scenes for that. And that's a, somebody else's completely's job who I'm going to hopefully get in two weeks to talk, my buddy JC, nice. uh, an enterprise storage guy. Um, but, but yeah, so there's a lot to, to building these things and, and building them in a way that makes them work well and um, intelligently. And that's, that's where you give a kind of the benefit of having somebody like Jared, you know, Splunk is, it's a tool that can be picked up and kind of figured out for base purposes. I mean, we do it in our computer uh, cybersecurity team um, prep, you know, we have students who put together and build Splunk instances, but when you're talking about, you know, millions of dollars being saved, you potentially, you know, could, you, you need to find the right guy. And that's where Jared, who has built his expertise and niche and Splunk comes along. And, and that's kind of what I, I refer to as the sweet spot. 
um, him, my buddy JC, a couple other people I know have found what I would call that sweet spot where they get into a technology, in this case Splunk, and they learn about it and they, they adopt and they grow and they, they experience it in, in different organizations and for different customers. And so they really immerse themselves in that for a few years. And then it comes to a point where they can really move up and become like that local expert or that, that giant consulting firm's expert. And, and then they build the big money to the customers because they're making the designs and they're, they're doing the, the heavy lifting. And you've got people working under you probably, right? That, no. No? You're, nope. you're, just, you're just doing it all up as, as the... No, the, we, we, it's a team. So I don't manage okay. anyone, but like we have a team dynamic of like, there are like, we have, I'm the senior architect on the Splunk side. And then I have three Splunk architects underneath me. Um, and then we had like one junior as well. So okay. like we had a pretty good team of like multiple Splunk people and they're all super sharp. So sure. like. But you've put in the time and you've got those certs and you've got the experience. And that's where, you know, um, that's where what I've seen, and I'm not asking you to vouch or anything, but that's where you can start making really good money yes. um, by being that expert um, and working for that company that knows and values, you know, that skill in particular that you've got and realizes there's not a ton of them around in, you know, in the St. Louis area, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that can be really lucrative. Um, if you're able to do something like that yeah and and like on top of that just specializing in something but having enough knowledge of the surrounding technologies oh yeah because like the storage thing i would have if i didn't know compression sizes is about like firewall logs or other logs compared to like something else i could have been spinning my wheels all the time and like it took it, it took a while to just figure out this problem, but like being able to specialize and um, know the one technology really well for me, Splunk, and then knowing surrounding technology. So like Windows logs, how Windows structures logs versus how a syslog Linux log is structured, stuff like that. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. So we're, uh, let's try to wrap up in like five to 10 minutes, if that's cool with you, Jared. Yeah. My Um, boss is poking me, so it might be. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. When you, when you, uh, you know, when you get somebody who comes in at the last minute, they, they might have the real job stuff they've got to take care of. Um, okay. So a day, you know, a day in the life of, um, I guess you haven't told us kind of about where you work and what it is you do or who you work for. I work for a company called Accenture Federal Services. They actually just opened up an office in St. Louis, but their cyber division is mainly based out of San Antonio and Washington, D.C. I work in Nashville, Illinois. I work in my basement. Um, I have a typical computer person, right? Sitting yep. alone. You're probably wearing a black hoodie right now in the basement yep. with yes. the lights off. Yep. Yep. So I have a, I have a mask right next to me. That's why I couldn't be on camera. I didn't want to put that on with the camera so (laughs) but yeah and like i work in a small little town and i make pretty good money um for what i do and like i enjoy it so and and that's what's important yeah and then for this con like this contract i've been on for three years now uh i won't go i can't go and do too do too detailed they're a government agency uh across the world um 
and like this one instance is helping out one of their divisions of like getting up like a, a sock type splunk setup in uh one of the GovCloud instances. Okay. So it's a federal federal organization of some sort, federal government of some sort, and you're helping them build Splunk at this point to build a security operations center around Splunk as a tool. Yep. Awesome. Um all right. I want to say, uh, do any of my my guests have any questions? Monica. So you said that you worked for Cerner back in the day, correct? Yep. Um, just in a few words, because I use them as a client. What, what was your opinion of... Um, the system flow just out of curiosity they have great divisions in the company and they have terrible divisions in the company okay <laughs> I, I pick up what you're putting down and i thank mm -hmm. you for that yeah uh, yeah as a, as a as a client user i kind of want to pull my hair out most of the time and i can't wait for our contract to end with them for yeah. for what i do yeah. thank you well i mean they're oracle now so <laughs> Let's just oh well, we have, now. we have we haven't gotten that far yet. So, mm -hmm. we're, I, hmm. <laughs> yeah. No. And so, so next week we have somebody who's talking to us about Epic, um, Monica, my my, my pharmacist, my pharmacist friend. Um, we'll be chatting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any, any other questions, Alex? Did you have a question? No. Okay. Um, all right, Jared. Well, I have my kind of five questions with tom that i oh didn't know yet. this is coming oh. yes yes they're evolving okay i'm getting better with each time hopefully tell me what your favorite food restaurant or cuisine is uh favorite food is definitely uh pizza G and give uh, us more we need more than just pizza there's so many i i do love the quattros down in carbondale okay um i will have to say it's probably the top pizza that i've ever had it's delicious Awesome. And I'm writing this down, Quattro. So I, I don't know why I'm making notes about what you, this is just for fun. Uh, yep. Maybe, maybe this is subliminally going to get me pizza tonight or something. Heck, no. I could, I could walk out this door when we're done and I could be at Quattro's in three and a half minutes getting a slice. Um, okay. Uh, do you have any podcast books, movies, TVs about technology or related that you recommend for students? Oh man. And it's entertaining, informative, whatever. Yeah, uh, I mean, technology-wise, like I like the Paul Security Weekly, still a good one. Um, Defensive Security Podcast, although it's been a while since they've posted something that I can keep track of. And then def I, I need to look this one up because I can't remember what it's called. Oh, Breaking Down Security is another good one. Uh, you recommended a book that I read after you recommended. Do you remember that one? Oh, was it Zero Day? No, is that a good one too? I think so. No, you recommended The Phoenix Project. Oh, yeah, 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 The Phoenix Project. Um, which is one I listened to on Audible and really, really enjoyed it. And one of the things they're going to do in this class is find a book um, or media and and dive into it. And I'm going to recommend that one because I really, really enjoyed that. Not the second one, the unicorn, whatever, or something wasn't yeah, quite yeah, as yeah. good. But anyway, um, okay. So then question number three, 
Um, is there a technology you would like to learn or work with uh, either at work or at home, something on your radar uh, up and coming, something you haven't had a chance to, but are interested in? Uh, Kubernetes. Kubernetes. I would like to try to figure out how that goes. Okay. Um, how do you think your role or career will change in the next five to 10 years? I'm sure I'll be fired and living in the streets. <laughs> no, um, it's one of those things where I think my role is just, it's going to be more of the same of doing, taking the stuff I know about Splunk and using it as a more of like security architecture type deal. So how does it tie into the big picture? And then learning other technologies in that department, because if Splunk gets bought by Oracle or another company Cisco? and yeah, or yeah, that's the running theme is like, and the technology just stagnates. You want to make sure that you know not only about their competitors, but like supporting. So like for me, Cribble, I've gotten really good at Cribble. I know, I know their CEO. I know a lot of their good techs over there. Um, and like, I think that company with their technology is going to go someplace great. So I'm trying to keep tabs on them. They, I mean, they have a great learning program as well. They have a few entry level certs that are free to take and learn. So no, staying on top of that. And that way, like if something happens to my main Splunk, I'm, I'll still have a job because I'll be like, I'm still a security architect. I know the security themes, what buzzwords are popular, which ones are useless and which companies I should stay away from. Cool. So. All right. And last one, before we close this all out, if it's you DNS. could, oh, it's sorry. always DNS. Huh. If you had the means to retire today and do anything in the world that you absolutely wanted to money, no object, that type of thing, what would you be doing? I would try to learn IPv6. <laughs> Come on, quit being a geek. <laughs> Tell us something fun. Um, I don't know. I'd probably just honestly get like an RV and travel around the world, you know, get a private jet as well and take the RV to like Europe and travel around Asia and Africa and just travel the world. It might be easier to get a different private or a different RV in each location in each major continent. <laughs> I thought you were saying a different private jet for each. You just, you just, you just parachute out of it and it crashes somewhere. <laughs> like, well, I'll get another one when I leave. And okay, so Matthew just posted in the chat an RV he wants. And Matthew just came back from a, uh, I haven't gotten to talk to you about it yet, Matt, but from a trip from Key West to Alaska, which um, I'll have to hear about some other time. But I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop the recording for Jared. Um, everybody, thank you to Jared. We really appreciate it, Jared. You're always a, a true friend of the program. And you have a lot to talk to us about and a lot we can learn from you. So thank you again. And I'll try to make it at least in a, a week before I bug you for something else. All right. Sounds good. All right. Anytime, Tom, anytime. Take care, Jared. We'll see you yep. later. Let me know when you want to come down for Quattro's. I'll buy. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> see ya. <laughs>